Chronicles 17. First Chronicles 17. Let's begin by reading verses 1 and 2. Now it came to pass when David was dwelling in his house that David said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under tent curtains. Then Nathan said to David, Do all that's in your heart, for God is with you. David wanted to build a house for God so much that it really delighted the Lord. So much so that the Lord tells the whole story that's recorded in 2 Samuel. He tells it again here in in this chapter. And it bothered David so much that the ark, which represented God's presence, sat in a flimsy tent while he lived in a beautiful palace. Now, David's desire was good and it was right. But his timing was wrong. God told David, you can't build me a temple. And yet, didn't Nathan just say, go for it, God is with you? And David, being the man of God that he was, was willing to submit to God's timing. And that's the key, submitting to the will of God, even when we don't get our way, even when things in life don't go the way we want them to or think they should. If you live on some level of luxury while God's work or his house or his servants are lacking, maybe God wants you to change the situation like David here. That is, do something to balance things out, but also be willing to do According, do it according to God's timing. Like I said, what David wanted to do was a good thing. And the Lord told him that it was a good thing in 1 Kings chapter 8. He said, David, it, it, that's a good thing. But even though what David was feeling was right in himself, and it showed a right heart towards God, it wasn't what God wanted. It wasn't God's will for David. Because David had been a man of war and he had shed a lot of blood. And that's why God wouldn't let him carry out the desire of his heart. So David, you know, he's sensing this desire to build God God a house. And he wants to go tell Nathan the prophet. And he goes and he tells Nathan the prophet what he wants to do. Now, Nathan, knowing that that, that David is a holy man, that 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 he's got great character and that he knows his character very well, he knows how devoted David is to the Lord and that the Lord is with him in all that he did. Nathan said automatically, just on impulse, David, do all that's in your heart. Because God is with you. Obviously, God wasn't with him. Here's the the gist of 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 the message here. You and I need to be very careful when we tell somebody, go for it. I'm sure God would agree. For example, when you see a person struggling or going through something, a really hard time or a painful experience, don't try to stop it. Somebody said, pray that their difficulty will grow even 10 times worse. Until no power on earth or in hell could keep them from going to Jesus. We want people to go to Jesus. Not to somebody else or another church. 
you want them to go to Jesus. Over and over again, without thinking about it, we become, seriously, think of it, we become little gods in their life. We come in and we actually stop God's will. When we tell them, oh, God doesn't want you to hurt. Oh, God doesn't want you to go through this tough time. God doesn't want you to go through this difficulty. God doesn't want you to hurt or be unhappy. God wants you to have peace and joy and a wonderful life, which he does. But he didn't promise that we'd have a, a, a bed of roses getting there. And people will take that, that, that passage where it says that God has called you to live in peace. They've taken that out of context. They use 1 Corinthians 7.15, which deals with husbands and wives. If the husband or wife who isn't a believer insists on, be, on leaving, let them go, Paul said. In such cases, the Christian husband or wife is no longer bound to the other, for God has called you to live in peace. Has nothing to do with every situation. God can give you peace in the midst of those situations. Listen to what God says about some of these situations. Isaiah 45, 7. He says, I form the light and create darkness. Notice, I make peace and I create calamity. I, the Lord, do all of these things. Amos 3, 6. If there is calamity in a city, will not the Lord have done it? 1 Kings 9, 9. The Lord has brought all this calamity on them. Deuteronomy 32, 39, and there is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive, I wound and I heal. In Ecclesiastes 7, 14, I've, I've quoted this several times. Enjoy prosperity while you can, but when hard times strike, realize that both come from God. Remember that nothing is certain in this life. So instead of praying for the Lord's will to be done in the lives of these people that are struggling. We, we, we get into the emotions. We sympathize and oh, we hurt with them and we feel and we get up, we get all caught up in the other person's emotions and feelings. And, and we end up getting in the way of them doing and doing more harm than good. That person one day might say, you know what? You're a thief. You stole my desire to follow Jesus. And because of you, I lost sight of Jesus. You see, we need to be careful that we don't rejoice with somebody over the wrong thing. Listen carefully with your whole being until you hear Christ's voice and you see Christ's life in the life of the other person. That's what we're looking for. We're looking for the, for, the, for the life of Christ in the other person. Never think about what devastation and difficulties or sickness or suffering it might bring to them and what they might go through. And many times things often have to get worse before they get better. And you may have to watch Jesus totally wreck a person's life before he saves it. Now, you might be thinking, that's pretty cold, Pastor. That sounds pretty heartless. But you always have to keep in mind that Jesus is concerned more about your holiness than he is your happiness. And Jesus said, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. The answer to, to problems 
The answer to conflict or whatever goes on in my life is submission. It's submitting to God. It's staying in the place where God has you. It's staying in the fight. You don't win a war by retreating. We have a great example of this in Genesis 16, verse 6 through 11. Let me read it to you. It's the story of, 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 of Hagar and, and her battle with Sarah. Abraham replied, look, speaking to, to his wife, Sarah, she's your servant. Speaking of Hagar, deal with her as you see fit. Then Sarah treated Hagar. And listen, Sarah treated Hagar so harshly that she ran away. The angel of the Lord found Hagar beside a spring of water in the wilderness along the road to Shur. The angel said to her, Hagar, Sarai's servant. It's like he had to remind her who she was. Sarai's servant. Hagar, Sarai's servant. Where have you come from and where are you going? She says, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarah. The angel of the Lord said to her, go back to your mistress. What? To that harsh woman? To that harsh place? He said to her, I will give you more descendants than you can count. Notice he sent her back, but with a promise. You are now pregnant, he told her, and will give birth to a son. You are you are to name him Ishmael, which means God hears for the Lord has heard your city of this, your cry of distress. You see, Hagar is on her way back to Egypt at this point where God told her, go back to Abraham's camp and submit yourself to Sarah. You want me to go back to that mean woman and be subjected to 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 her mistreatment? You mean God wants me to go back or, or and stay in those miserable conditions? Yeah. Hagar's wilderness experience brought and think of it now. Her experience brought her face to face with God. That's where we want to that's where we want to end up at. And her face to face experience with God taught her some important truth about God. We don't learn about the wonderful promise and truth about God running away from our problems or our situations. But staying where we're planted, staying in the midst of them. That's what our wilderness experiences are supposed to do. We see that also in Jacob. When he when he was running away, when he had his relationship problem with his brother Esau. Esau was going to kill him. He's on the run. It says, now Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. So he came, listen, he came to a certain place and he stayed there all night. He took one of the stones of that place and he put it at his head and he lay down in that place to sleep. Then Jacob has a dream. And behold, the Lord said, I am the Lord God of your Abra of Abraham, your father and the God of Jacob. I'm sorry, the God of Isaac. Then Jacob woke up, the scripture said, and he said, notice, surely the Lord is in this place. And I didn't know it. And he was afraid that is with reverence. He said, how awesome is this place? What place was that? It was a place of loneliness. It was a place of despair. He was running away from his brother, but that's where he found the Lord. He says, man, he says, God, God was in this place. You see, many times when we're in those struggles and we're having difficulties, whatever they might be or whatever we might be going, we think God isn't in this. God's not in this. Jacob said, man, he says, 
I didn't know it, but God is in this place. And he goes, how awesome is this place? That's what you will say when God meets you in your place of despair. How awesome is this place? But you'll never experience that when you run. When you run away from your difficulties. When you think that will solve the problem. Where did meet Jacob meet God? In a wilderness experience. Our God is a living God who sees us, who hears our cries when we hurt. He heard Hagar, he heard Jacob, and he met them in their hurt. God is a personal God, and he's concerned about mistreated people. He knows the future, and he cares for those who who will trust him. So Hagar ends up going back. She submits herself to Sarah. And you know what? She probably apologized for being proud and despising her and running away. But you see, she went back and trusted God to protect her and her her, her future son in the future. You see, we don't grow and solve problems by running from them. We need to submit to God and trust him to work them out for his good, for our good and for his glory. So from this story, we learn the lesson of how a man's heart might be right with God. David's heart was right with God. And that what he might do and what he wants to do might feel good. It might look good. It might be very admirable. But totally wrong. Totally wrong. For reasons not known to us. But it may be for God's glory that God might use him. Who better can God use when somebody has been hurt deeply? When somebody has had cancer, when somebody's lost a child, when somebody's had a a, a, a marriage that's broken up or, 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 you know, a relationship that, you know, uh, didn't happen the way I thought it would. How better can, can God use somebody than somebody who's been in that wilderness experience? It might be more for God's glory than that he might be passed over uh, and, and somebody else is chosen. Proverbs 19.21 says, There are many plans in a man's heart. Oh, we make all kinds of plans. Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel, that will stand. It's foolish to trust in man's judgment when it comes to the things of God, even when it's a godly man like Nathan. There's another truth here. David graciously accepts being passed over. He accepts that he can't build a house for God and and to let somebody else have the honor. He he submitted to that. He accepted it. Now, this isn't easy to do sometimes. It's often hard to take. And it's only by the grace of God's ruling in our heart that can help us to do this. Remember Moses? He put up with leading God's people out of Egypt who were nothing but headaches and hardship to him for 40 years. 40 years. He gets just in sight of the promised land, and guess what? Everything falls apart. He doesn't get to go in. After 40 years of headache and hardship with these people, somebody else steps in to take over, which was Joshua. Joshua gets the benefit of Moses' 40 years of hardship with these people. It was Moses' labor, but Joshua got to reap the benefits. 
David was the one who shaped the kingdom. David fought the battles of the Lord. David brought the ark to its proper place. But just as he's about to reap the desire of his heart to see the temple built for the Lord, David says, David's told, you can't do the job. I'm giving it to your son. Just like with Moses, he didn't get to go into the promised land. Son, he says, Joshua's going to do it. They get to lay down and die. Solomon would, Solomon would be the one in the spotlight and David would probably be gossiped about. Oh man, can you believe it? How, what a raw deal Moses got? No, he led the people for 40 years and look what happened to him. Because that's usually what happens. But you understand, that's life. It's not fair. Life is not like a storybook. But it's Christ who makes sense out of the senseless. Life is about the will of God. It's not about fairness. It's about the will of God. And that's the way it goes many times. Life is full of hopes and dreams that we may never see. But for us, God's people, think of it. All of our hopes or dreams are to be understood in an experience that will be brighter and better in eternity. You know, we have so many, you know, we have this, this well, some do, you're, you're Bucket list. Oh, I want to do this. When you get to heaven, you ain't going to remember it. You pay all this money for these experiences here on earth, but you're going to go to heaven for the ultimate experience. And none of that stuff will be remembered because he says the the thoughts that if we could remember things going on here, we we would know what was going on and we'd be really, you know, bummed out a lot of the times. We need to understand that our greatest experiences and times are going to be in glory. That's why we need a lot of grace when life passes us by and to even rejoice when we're passed by and when others get the honors for what we've worked so hard to do because it's God's will. And it's for his glory. And we need to understand that I am to be nothing more than a vessel that is fit for the master's use. And ready to obey his command immediately to be used by him when he wills, how he wills and where he wills. And this should always be our desire and prayer. He must increase, but I must decrease. Verses 3 through 10. But it happened that night that the word of God came to Nathan saying, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, You shall not build me a house to dwell in, for I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought up Israel, even to this day, but have gone from tent to tent and from one tabernacle to another. Wherever I have moved about with all Israel, have I ever spoken a word to any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold from following the sheep to be ruler over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all of your enemies from before you and have made you a name like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them, notice, plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. Also, I will subdue all your enemies. And furthermore, I tell you that at the at the Lord um, and furthermore, I tell you that the Lord will build you a house. So. 
even though David wasn't to build the Lord a house, God had a message for him. And he gives him some great important prom- and important promises about his descendants and the success, the future success of the people of Israel. We see here in verse 5 that there's, noth- that, that there's one thing closer to God's heart that, that, than building projects. No matter how impressive they might be, there's one thing closer to God's heart. Notice in verse 5, it says, I've never lived in a temple from the day I brought the Israels out of Egypt until now. He says, my home has always been a tent moving from one place to another. You see, the Lord loves to be with his children in all of their situations. No matter how humble those circumstances might be. Again, he loves to be with us. God always associates himself with his people. That's why he became a man. Back in the Old Testament, he met with his people in a tent because they lived in tents. That's what brings joy to the Lord's heart. And this means way more to the Lord than living in an impressive house or palace. Jesus said, where two or three witnesses are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. So when the people of Israel moved into the promised land and built permanent homes, there was no permanent temple built. God says in verse 6, did I say to them, why haven't you built me a house of cedar? No, this was David's desire. God told Nathan to tell David, I don't want you to ever forget your humble beginnings. I went down, David, and I picked you up when you were a little shepherd boy. I made you a king over my people. God made David great like the great men of the earth, verse 7 and 8 says. God says, the day will come, David, when I will put Israel in that land and then they will have peace. They will turn to me in that day, which is still future. David said, but Lord, I want to build you a house. God says, but David, you can't. You have too much blood on your hands. I can't let you build the temple. But he says, David, I tell you what, I will build you a house. Isn't that like God? (laughs) I'll build you a house, David. I'll make you a dynasty. It was in David's heart to build God a house and God gave him credit for it. Look at verses 11 through 12. And it shall be when your days are fulfilled, when you must go to be with your fathers, that is when he dies, that I will set up your seed after you who will be of your sons and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build me a house and I will establish his throne Forever. Now, who would he be talking about? Remember what God said to Mary in Luke 1, 31 through 33? Listen to what he told her. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him notice the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. The great covenant that God made with David is to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Verses 13 and 15, through 15. I will be his father and he shall be my son. And I will not take my mercy away from him as I took it from him who was before you. And I will establish him in my house and in my kingdom forever. And his throne shall be established forever according to all these words and according to all this vision. So Nathan spoke to David. So the Lord was talking about Jesus. God will build a kingdom on this earth and Jesus is coming to establish that kingdom. Then verses 16 through 27, we have David's worship and prayer. Look at verses 16 through 18. 
Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and he said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? And yet this was a small thing in your sight, O God. And you have also spoken of your servant's house for a great, great while to come and have regarded me according to the rank of a man of high degree. That is, you've treated me, God, like I was somebody of high degree. O Lord God, what more can David say to you for the honor of your servant? For you know your servant. David's attitude and his words of devotion here suggest the position that we're in with our creator and, and redeemer. And, it, and David's position here helps us to see, first of all, being aware that we're nothing and he's everything. David said, oh, Lord, who am I? When Nathan gave his message to David, David put himself in a position where he could think. Notice what verse 16 says. He sat before the Lord. He was in a position where he could think, sitting down before the Lord. And then he was overcome by this great awareness of his unworthiness. Lord, who am I? Verse 16 says, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? And then he had a great awareness of God's superiority. He says in verse 20, oh, Lord, there's none like you. There's no better way to end any difficulty between our God and ourselves than the way David says here. Oh, who am I? Lord, there's nobody like you. We've come to recognize the truth and we've come to a place of spiritual safety, having come to that right attitude. When we find that right attitude, that's when we're totally aware of our own nothingness and the total greatness of our God. Secondly, what we learn from David here is God doesn't just call us to be sons and daughters. He treats us like his children. Verse 17, he said, you have regarded me according to the rank of a man of high degree. You treat me like I'm somebody special, God. This probably means that David was thinking that God had treated him like somebody who was very great. But whatever David was thinking was true. God was treating David according to the high position that he was called to. And this fact, this truth is shown to us in the way God deals with all of his sons and his daughters. In the Gospels, we are called to be the sons and the daughters of God. And after he has restored us to this son and daughter relationship, then our Heavenly Father treats us like the, re uh, the reconciled sons and daughters that we've become. He confides in us. He gives us living principles to apply to our lives. He always makes himself available to us whenever we want. We can come to him and we can talk to him. And he chastens us. Rather than punishes us. Because we're his children. God has given us great honor in Jesus Christ. David felt like God had honored him so much. Verse 18 says that he, he, he didn't know how he could ask for anything more. The greatest desires of his heart were more than satisfied. And you see, when we submit our lives to Christ, when we when we come to that place where we recognize God is everything and I'm nothing, I will be more than satisfied. And how much more how much more honor and position could we ask for? Than than he's given us. In his grace. We have been given the position, Revelation 1, 6 says, of kings and priests to God. We're children of the heavenly father. 
Paul says, now we are the sons of God. We are heirs of God, Paul said. We're the friends of Christ, John says. And we're fellow laborers of the living God. We're workers with him. Again, how much more could we say about the honor that he gives his servants? Verses 19 through 24. O Lord, for your servant's sake, and according to your own heart, you have done all this greatness in making known all these great things. O Lord, notice there is none like you, nor is there any God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem for himself as a people, to make for yourself a name by great and awesome deeds, by driving out nations from before your people whom redeemed you, whom you redeemed from Egypt. For you have made your people Israel your very own people forever, and you, and you, Lord, have become their God. And now, O Lord, the word which you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, let it be established forever and do as you have said. So let it be established that your name may be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, is Israel's God. And let the house of your servant David be established before you. David was really pleading with the Lord here and asking him, Lord, confirm and establish your promises. And he gave reasons. He gave four reasons for asking this. And we can apply these same four things to ourselves plus one extra that David couldn't apply because Jesus hadn't come yet. So again, we can apply these things to ourselves. First of all, he said, do it for your servant's sake there in verse 19. We can pray and ask God to help us because we're his servants, because we know he loves us. Because he knows our trials, he knows our temptations, our fears, and our weaknesses, and he cares about our well-being. Secondly, for his namesake, do it, Lord, for your namesake and for your honor. We see that in verse 19, 20, and 24. According to your heart, Lord, that you may act with infinite grace and goodness that belongs to your divine nature. It's who you are, Lord. Verse 24 says that your name, Lord, may be magnified forever. So that everyone around us, Lord, will see and know how faithful you are, how great and good you are, and continuing to show your loving kindness and keeping your word to those of the land that belongs to you. You see, we can call on and depend upon God's character. That is his attributes of which, again, in the ladies studies, that's what you're learning, the attributes of God. The character of God. And we can depend upon God's attributes as a very strong reason why he should bless us. You see, if he answers our prayer according to his own heart, hey, if he supplies and satisfies our needs in the tenderness of his heart, we will be blessed. The third thing that we learn here in verses 21 through 22 is he cares for the church. In these verses, David prayed for God to do his will because of Israel who he had redeemed and who he had made his own people by his special mercies. We can also ask for great things to be done for us because, you see, we're the church for who his son suffered and died for and redeemed with his precious blood. Fourthly, we can learn from, we, we can call upon the Lord because of his promises. Verse 26 says, you are God and have promised this goodness to your servant. God has given us great and precious promises, the scripture says. There's no more solid foundation where we can place our hope and prayers on God than on his never changing word. He never fails with his promises. He never goes back on his word. And then the fifth one that David couldn't 
use as a basis to pray for is that, that, is that we can ask God to answer our prayers in Jesus' name. Because you see, Jesus is for Jesus' sake that who loved us and gave himself for us, who lived and died for us, so we can ask for all of those blessings that we need in Jesus' name. We can ask for mercy to be accepted as a son or a daughter. We can ask for his guidance and his protection in this life. We can ask for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We can ask for the Spirit's help and for blessing and and the Spirit's blessing in ministry. We can ask also in Jesus' name for entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Verses 25 through 27. For you, O my God, have revealed to your servant that you will build him a house. Therefore, your servant has found it in his heart, notice, to pray before you. And now, Lord, you are God, and you have promised this goodness to your servant. Now you have been pleased to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue before you forever. For you have blessed it, O Lord, and it shall be blessed forever. Praying for his promises. Now, God has promised us a lot of things. Now, does that mean, hey, I don't need to pray for it? No. You know, even though we have God's promises, that don't mean that we don't have to pray. Verse 25 says, you have revealed to your servant that you will build him a house. Therefore, your servant has found it in his heart. Notice, to pray before you. Just because because God has promised to supply all of our needs, of all of those who love him with everything they need, That doesn't mean that we now just sit back and wait for a special delivery from God. This doesn't cancel out. This doesn't null and void uh, Jesus' command to pray for our daily bread. As he said in Matthew 6, 11. We should pray. Because God has promised us many things. So we need to ask for the outpouring of his spirit. We're told that God's kingdom will be set up on the earth. We need to pray, Lord Your kingdom come. And he said, pray his kingdom come. God's promises are not an excuse not to pray, but the reason to pray. Secondly, God's promises don't mean that there are no conditions to be met. Just because, well, he's promised them. I don't have to do anything. I don't don't need to pray. I don't need to be obedient. Wrong. David confirms in verse 26 God's goodness to his servant. But in verse 27, his prayer shows that he was aware that there was something else needed other than the simple promise that God made in order for that prayer to be answered. Obedience was very basic and very a very important requirement. Even if it wasn't stated so, it was always understood. The dividing of the kingdom under David's grandson Rehoboam proved this to be true. All of God's promises to us are conditional based on our loyalty to him. If we're faithful to the end, we'll have his everlasting love. We'll have his everlasting care. We'll have his gracious blessing. And in the end, we will be in his wonderful presence. But we can't be so sure of the promise that we for that that we forget to understand the conditions. We can't take the promises for granted. God's promises are often answered in better. And here's the other thing we learn here. God's promises are often answered in in better ways than we expected and in better ways than we prayed for. David was assured that if God blessed, 
it would be forever. And he was right. But the good thing in store for him was a lot different than what he was thinking of at the time. Isaiah 30, 18 says, therefore, the Lord will wait that he may be gracious to you. In other words, many times we pray for things. And it, it takes time sometimes. And it, it takes usually a lot longer than we want to wait. But Isaiah said, God will make us wait so he may be gracious to you. In other words, God will make us wait. So that he can bless us in a much greater way than we were praying for ourselves or expecting. We sometimes just pray, oh, just for you know, a quickie blessing and, oh, Lord, th- this will get me by. And God says, hey, I have so much more for you. I want to do more for you than that. I want to do exceedingly and abundantly above all that you could ask or think. Could David had ex- have expected how quick the kingdom would be divided? After just a few generations, the people would go into captivity. If he had, he may have sadly been disappointed and his faith might have, you know, received a a serious shock or disappointment. But if he could have foreseen how God's promise was fulfilled in the end, that the son of David, Jesus Christ, would reign as a prince of peace and the Lord of righteousness over the all human world, he would have truly rejoiced. God's purpose was bigger than David could think. God's purpose is greater than our thoughts. And he tells us in Isaiah, his thoughts are are greater than our thoughts. They're above our thoughts. They're, 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 They're bigger than our thoughts. And as God's purpose for David was bigger, it's the same for us. The hope of one generation is still to be experienced, but maybe further on in another way. At first, we might be disappointed, but afterwards, we'll be very satisfied because it was more than we expected. So in closing, the promises of life are fulfilled. The promises that God gives us, they're fulfilled. But they're they're, they're fulfilled in ways that God knows are better for us than, than what we could think of, what we might imagine or would want. And heaven is going to prove to be something a lot better than what we can ever imagine. You know, I know that that we sit and we imagine, what is heaven going to be like? And we can only think about it based on on human ideas and thoughts and, and, and words. But man, think of it, the, the creative mind of God made the heavens. And his creative mind, compared to our puny little minds, you you know it's going to be a lot more than we expected. Greater, far greater than we could ever imagine. That's the blessed hope that we have to look forward to. Paul said it. Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Father, thank you again for this wonderful word, Lord. Father, help us to glean the lessons from this chapter, God. Lord, as David learned that he was a nobody. And you are everybody. Moses spent his first 40 years 
learning to be a somebody. And the second 40 years he spent becoming a nobody. And his last 40 years he spent learning that you are everybody. That you are somebody. God help us to get to that place. God help us to understand your will be done, not my will. God help me to stand in the face of tribulation, of pain and suffering, God. And help me not to run away. Help me to submit, Father, to the things that you allow in my life. The suffering or the pain, God. Help me to submit to it, God. Help me to sit before you as David said, as David did. And recognize who am I? And help me to understand that whatever your will. No matter how painful it is, is the best thing for me. And that through sorrow and pain and suffering, God. Through that wilderness experience like Hagar and Jacob. That's where they met you. During the most difficult time. God, help us to to understand that. Help us to, to come to that place in our walk with you, Lord. It's the best place to be, Father. To be in the fiery furnace with you, Lord. To be in in the lion's den with you, Father. To be in the midst of the storms with you like Paul was on his way to Malta. Like Daniel's three friends in the fiery furnace. Like Daniel in the lion's den, you were with them, God. With the children of Israel, Israel in the middle of the Red Sea, you were with them, God. That's where we see your greatest works, your greatest power. Lord, help us not to not be afraid of of trials and circumstances, God. But to recognize, God, the good and the bad, they both are appointed by you, Lord. For a greater reason and purpose than we could ever imagine. Maybe you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus Christ. Maybe it's because of difficulties you've experienced in your life and maybe think that God isn't around or God doesn't care or God doesn't love you. Which is totally wrong. But He may use those kinds of things to bring you to Him because He loves you so much. The worship team is going to lead us in a time of worship. And if you want to accept Christ, receive Him as your Lord and Savior. Then as we worship, you get up out of your seat. You make your way towards the steps up front. I'll meet you there. And when the song is over, we'll pray together a simple prayer of faith.